Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So what's the, uh, what's the tricky thing about making butter? There is little margarine for error. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from Alan Palomo, the man behind the band Neon Indian. That'll help break the ice. Yeah. He's on tour now, and we'll hear more from him later. Also coming up, actress Allison Janney tells us about her multiple Emmy-winning work on The West Wing and Sitcom Mom. Plus, you'll hear comedian John Mulaney describe how dumb he looks watching TV, and TV icon Norman Lear draws on 92 years of life experience to bring you this etiquette advice. Get lost. Two words of wisdom. Exactly. And if all that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired last November. So cast your mind back to a time of year when you had to pack sweaters for vacation. When, as at any party, we started with small talk. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by Ben Johnson. He is host of Marketplace Tech and the new podcast, Codebreaker, which takes a deep, cool dive into the world of tech. Ben what story are you going to be talking about this week? I'm going to be talking about how my cat's tongue is going to disrupt the future. <laughs> okay. Wow, that's a powerful cat, man. What's going on? You know, it, it, so a bunch of researchers at uh, the Georgia Institute of Technology looked at the cleaning habits of 27 mammals. Mm. Um, and what they found is mammals from chinchillas to cats are really good at cleaning themselves. So they didn't right. they didn't study any like college age males then I'm guessing <laughs> <laughs> terrible they did not. terrible subjects they did for not. this study. First of all, the surface area that we're talking about when we're talking about hairy creatures is vast. Okay. So a chinchilla is like a SUV. Think about that. <laughs> okay. I'll never look at a chinchilla the same way again. So let me understand this. So basically each hair counts as part of the surface area of the animal. Yeah, for example, an otter Mm -hmm. the size of a hockey rink. Wow. Because it's so dense with the fur. That's right. Yeah. And a cat is like a ping pong table. (laughs) (laughs) No wonder they're so bouncy. And also always licking themselves. (laughs) It's true. So this is fascinating, but why why do we care? So they're really great at cleaning themselves. Well, one of the biggest problems with our our devices and our Mars rovers and our drones is Mm. that dust and dirt really mess them up. And especially if you're on Mars, there's dust... All over that joint. Get Nobody's you. ever cleaned that place. <laughs> yeah. So, or that we know of. Yeah. So, um, we could actually use something like a cat's tongue to get wow. the dirt out of our Mars rover. I bet these researchers are the most well funded researchers in the world. They're like, oh, cats licking themselves? Where do I yeah. sign up? That's a Kickstarter that's going to have some support, I feel, from the internet community. Yeah. Uh, ben Johnson of the new podcast, Codebreaker. Thanks for the small talk. Thanks for having me, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our homebrewed history lesson with booze. First the history, and this time it's kind of special. We asked Michelle Philippi to take the week off and make way for inimitable New York Times bestselling author Sarah Vowell. You may know her from her hugely popular book, Assassination Vacation, or from her contributions to This American Life. She just released her sixth nonfiction book about American history and culture. It's called Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. And so here's Sarah with the tale of one of France's most peculiar battle strategies. Hi, this is Sarah Vowell. So remember how France used to own most of Canada? It's actually why some people in Canada still speak French. What happened was France lost Canada to Great Britain at the end of the Seven Years' War. 
This is the war we in America call the French and Indian War. And by the end of that war, besides most of their dignity and most of Canada, France had also lost a great deal of money. They were broke. What they had in abundance was a pure and bitter hatred toward England and Englishmen. And when the French heard that there was this ragtag group of bumpkins in the American colonies, like George Washington and Ben Franklin and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, when France heard that this group of like punks across the Atlantic were revolting against their uh, revolting nemesis, Great Britain, France wanted to help these guys out. But France didn't want to get back into a war with Great Britain and lose yet again, and France didn't really have enough money to do that anyway, so what they decided to do was help the American colonists on the sly by sending them gunpowder and um, supplies, tents, uh, uniforms, cannons, cannonballs, war stuff. So, of course the French did what anyone would they hired a playwright to be their covert arms dealer. The court of Louis XVI hired the playwright Beaumarchais, France's greatest living dramatist, the author of the plays um, The Marriage of Figaro and The Barber of Seville. They hired him to gather together supplies and weaponry to send to the Americans. And he used a fake name, and he set up a fake company. And after he had gathered um, like tons and tons of very useful things, weapons and, and supplies and whatnot, Beaumarchais went to the port of La Havre on the coast of France to supervise the loading of this stuff onto the ships before they were sent to the colonies. He did this under an assumed name because, you know, obviously they don't want the British to find out. As it happened, in the town of La Havre. They happened to be putting on a local production of The Barber of Seville. And Beaumarchais, even though he was there under an assumed name, he went to see his play being produced. And he was appalled at the quality. He thought the local La Havre production of The Barber of Seville was not up to his standards. And so he unmasked himself then and there and started forcing this community theater to run rehearsals with him. And he was running back and forth from the dock to the theater, yelling at the guys loading the cargo onto the ships. Then he'd go back to the theater and yell at the actors. Of course, the British found out and almost went to war with France right then and there. I was explaining this to this playwright friend of mine, Sherm. And I was expressing a certain amount of outrage that Beaumarchais almost botched, you know, one of the most important covert arms deals in world history because of an amateur production of The Barber of Seville. And all my playwright friend said about this was he wanted to know how the production turned out once Beaumarchais had tinkered with it. Sarah Vowell with a historical tale from her new book, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. 
And now for a drink to serve with that tale, I am on the line with Walter Stabe. He is chef and owner of City Tavern in Philadelphia, which first opened in the 1770s, Beaumarchais' time. Uh, Walter is also the host of the Emmy-winning TV show, A Taste of History, which blends history and food. Walter, what drink did that story inspire? You know, it's a very, very good topic and a very interesting topic. And the drink that inspired me was actually first documented in 1520. We call it a, a kier. That's done with the cassis and champagne. Oh, the cure, the cure cocktail, which yes, is yeah, uh-huh. cassis and, and champagne, that is? Yes. Okay. And the way it's done is that uh, you take uh, a raspberry uh, vinegar, mix it with simple syrup that goes on the bottom of the champagne flute. You top it off with champagne, and voila, you got the most unbelievable drink. Very simple. So obviously, the champagne in this cocktail makes sense for the French half of this story. But you replace the cassis in the cure cocktail with vinegar, does that somehow represent maybe the American part of this yeah. story? Or? The historical connection is that the settlers that came over from the old country, from the Europe, didn't realize the high degrees of heat in this part of the world. Uh, they didn't realize that Philadelphia is in the same longitude as Rome. So think about the temperatures, you know. Very hot. So, so then they made it into vinegar, which they never gets bad. So oh, it's, it's like a preservative. Correct. So it's timeless. Mm-hmm. All right. I have one more question for you. You're a student of history. I'm just trying to figure out what is going on in the French mind that would make them think it was a good idea to send a playwright <laughs> to make an arms deal. You know why? why? Nobody would suspect that playwright to do that. Oh, so... Most likely nobody suspected until he demasked himself and made a fool out of himself. <laughs> and obviously the hate of the, of the French against the British made it all happen. And when you, if you go to France, I was over there last year filming, they are still to this day haven't forgotten the, the British, you know. They're all still the, a little angry. Yeah, all the historians you talk to, it's, it's unbelievable, yeah. Message to the Brits, keep your eyes on French playwrights. You never know what those guys might be up to. I would think so. <laughs> Walter Stave of Philly's City Tavern Restaurant and host of the Emmy-winning show A Taste of History. And, uh, Brendan, you know my dad is a playwright. I do. He's a fine one. That's right. Would not pick him to do a secret weapons deal. <laughs> no. Just, just two very different skill sets, yes. I have to tell you. Noted. Folks, uh, the recipe for that cocktail isn't a secret. Yeah. You'll find it at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the soundtrack in which a great music maker DJs your dinner party. And our guest is Alan Palomo, better known as Neon Indian. He weaves disco bass lines into reggae beats to produce a sound that's easily danceable, but kind of hard to describe. Hmm. Pitchfork says his new album sounds, quote, like a carnival cruise night based around New York's Danceteria circa 1982. You got that? Sure. Here's Alan to spin some songs. Hey, this is Alan Palomo from Neon Indian. Uh, I'm not much of a cook. But, you know, I I have DJed a bit in the past few years. And if I were hosting a dinner party and not providing any kind of actual contributions food-wise, I I would try to make myself useful by also providing some ambiance. So uh, let's check out my dinner party soundtrack. I've always been a fan of Mexican dinner, which (laughs) starts at 10. And even more so, I would say that I'm a huge fan of Spanish dinner, which goes like hours. So we're going to start at 10. You're starving. You arrive at the party. You kind of don't even want to have alcohol yet because you know that if you have one drink before you have food, you might get prematurely belligerent. And, you know, once the food's out of the way, we clear the table and make a dance floor. It's kind of an old tune by James Mason. It's called I Want Your Love. 
kind of this like undulating, bubbling sort of soup of, a, of an old funk tune. It's pretty long and sprawling. I like things that present a very skeletal idea and you just get the understanding that they're going to slowly be aggregating things over time. So in this case, you know, it's just kind of a very simple bass line. And over time, you start hearing the chords come in and then these amazing backing vocals. And it never changes. It's not like it has like a verse or a chorus, which I think as a DJ for me has always been um, really interesting to see what people can do with that. So our second song is going to be uh, by Klausel. It's an old single uh, from the early 80s, I believe, and it's called uh, Let Me Love You. The production is very much 80s style, and I think it was kind of right around the time that people are incorporating more synthesizer sounds and, and drum machine production. But uh, it's got just kind of like an old sort of, you know, soul sensibility to it that I really like. And that, you know, is a little bit more upbeat. As I said, I'm, I myself am a terrible cook. I burn cereal. And actually, <laughs> I would probably uh, greatly disappoint people by just ordering pizza or something. So uh, assuming this is a potluck, people would be bringing in dishes from their various porcelain containers. You know, maybe even like Yucateca food, which has a lot of really great varieties of classic Mexican dishes. But then again, you know, I don't want to be too specific. So, you know, as long as it's uh, wrapped in a corn tortilla, I'll eat it. Our third tune for this dinnertime playlist is going to be Hearsay by Alexander O'Neill. Spreading all my name all over town. You know, I, I love a lot of Motown era songwriters and performers who then later in the 70s and 80s start exploring themes that go just beyond like what Motown was, which was like very saccharine, very sugary. And I like it, you know, when it kind of starts getting a little bit more complex. just got like a really resonating sort of metallic quality to the whole thing that I think is really just creepy almost. It's like a party in a bomb shelter. You know, we're done with the main course, we're bringing out the dessert, and it slowly transitions from dinner party to party party. And I'll go ahead and ham fist one of my own tunes in there called uh, Dear Scorpio Magazine. It's um, essentially an editorial letter to a now out-of-print porno magazine from Italy in the 1980s. I just found it really fascinating, like the idea that someone would continue to write, you know, letters about their experiences, even though it's like an institution that no longer exists. It's almost like a diary to nowhere. A 
Dinner Party soundtrack from Alan Palomo, a.k.a. Neon Indian. His new album is called Viga International Night School. He's back on tour in October. All right. Coming up, actor Allison Janney talks about mining punchlines from life's heaviest situations. Mm. And we invite you to a cheese giving. Which is also heavy in a very different way. Mm. That and more when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. We should let you know this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired last November. Well worth a second listen. Coming up, TV legend Norman Lear, creator of America's most famous fictional bigot, tells us how to behave, of course. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's actor Allison Janney. She's won accolades for her work in just about every medium, including a couple of Tony nominations, but she's probably best known as a TV star, especially as press secretary C.J. Craig on The West Wing. That's right. That role won her four Emmys. Then she won two more and is up for yet another for her latest role on the sitcom Mom. She plays Bonnie, a recovering drug and alcohol addict living with her daughter, who is also a recovering addict. Yes, it is funny. When I spoke to Allison, I asked about her first impressions of the show. Well, one of the things that drew me to it was the material and that the backdrop of it was people in uh, recovery. But I had no idea how big a role that was going to play. I didn't know how far into the recovery world they were going to go, and I don't know if the writers knew either. So as the season, as season one went on and, and season two, it came more to the forefront of the story. So we have essentially two family stories going on, the blood family, the, the Christie and, and, and Violet and Bonnie and... People who are all related in the show. Yeah. The uh, people who are... Re- that's what I'm trying to say. I couldn't think of the word. <laughs> Cheapers. Related. <laughs> My mind. And then we have the sober family, you know, the relationships that they've... Uh, Recovered uh, alcoholics and addicts who have sort of made a surrogate family. Yes, exactly. You're coming up all with all the right words. Thank that's you. That's me being a host. <laughs> but moving on. So you've got these two families. Yeah, the related ones and the adopted ones. You're welcome. No, they're great. And the writers have not shied away from dealing with subject matter that isn't necessarily, you know, you wouldn't think would be on sitcoms. This is exactly what I wanted to ask you about, though. There is, is there not a danger, especially in a compressed half hour that does have to deliver punchlines, that you're going to give short shrift to these very heavy issues. Is there ever a worry about that? Uh, there isn't. We deliver great laughs. I think the laughs, are, are we earn them, and they're far more rewarding for the audience to have gone through what we go through and laugh, that the laughs mean more. God, if you can't laugh going through tragic things, or bad, bad things are, happen to all of us, and we have to, there's always room for, for humor to help survive them. I think we have a clip that, illustrates this. Uh, This is a scene from the current season. You and your surrogate family of fellow recovering addicts are taking a young girl out to lunch. She has just spent her first day at your recovery meetings. So, Jody, what's your drug of choice? Yacht, trees, glass. What are those? Skis, Buddha, ice. This is depressing. If I wanted to get high now, I wouldn't know what to ask for. So, uh, where are you living? There's a guy. Mm. What's he do? He's a drug dealer. Mm. And a guitar player. Mm. Uh, The way these characters talk about addiction and the situations that they find themselves in, they feel so specific 
some of them must be real. Do you have maybe former addicts consulting or writing for the show? Yeah, we have a number of consultants who are, are in recovery. I'm no stranger to having every. There's nobody in the world who doesn't have someone in their life that's affected by some sort of addiction sure. or in recovery or alcoholism. And I've, uh, you know, going to Al-Anon meetings. I've been to open AA meetings. I've done... As a research um, for the role or for yourself? Uh, no, just for myself and issues in my own life that I've had to deal with. And, and I, I feel very proud to be doing a show that deals with it and destigmatizes it. Uh, I'd like to talk about another show I expect you're pretty proud of, <laughs> The West Wing, created and written by Aaron Sorkin, of course. He's known for his very verbose, super fast dialogue. Tell me about memorizing all of those words every week and yeah. having to deliver them at top speed. I loved it because I have such a fear of speaking in public as myself, even now as I, I was getting self-conscious because I have to have these headphones on and I'm hearing myself talk. Um, oh. So I don't, that makes me, I, you give me a, a you know 25 page monologue to memorize, I will be so happy because I can get that down and then spit it out. I love the fast pace. I always love those Rosalind Russell movies of, Howard you know, fast talking dames, Howard Hawks movies. It's just like, hey, what's the big idea? Coming in here, leaving the door open. And, you know, those kind of dames. I love those dames. And <laughs> CJ, of all the characters I've played, I wish I were most like her oh, because really? of how quick-witted she was. And it was really fun to play a character that smart. But you've been in shows like that, a, a, a single camera show, as they say, you know, a, a, an yeah. hour-long mm -hmm. comedy drama. You've been in yeah. major movies. You've acted on the stage. But I've I've sat in the audience of sitcoms, and I've always thought to myself, this is the strangest situation for an actor. Yeah. Because you're yeah. basically inviting the audience in to your creation process. The audience sits there while you do the scene over and over and over again, while you take direction. T tell me about that from the point of view of an actor. It, it's very much a, a three-ring circus, and, and I found it very hard and, and nerve-wracking to... I'm used to coming out on stage fully prepared, and you come out and show the finished product. And it took me a while. I didn't like messing up and having the audience <laughs> laugh, and they love it when you mess up, <laughs> and it would make me nervous. But now I've embraced it and see it's part of part of a show. It's just another show going on within the show. You treat that like a performance? Yeah, I do, sort of. I, I you know, after take is over, I'll have a prop in my hand and, and I'll throw them the prop I was working with. I'm <laughs> like, somebody take this out of my hands. I don't want to do that scene again. And then behind the set, when they don't see me, that's where I go, oh, God, I'm exhausted. Like, <laughs> there's like a, a lot of different performances going on in front yeah. of a live audience that way. We have a couple of questions we ask everyone on the show. Uh, okay. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Um, uh, 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 how are you? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Don't ask me how I am. <laughs> That's pretty basic, Allison. What's... Oh, God, it's such a weighted question because I always feel the need to answer it honestly in all areas of my life. It's such a, I just don't ever, I, why can't I just say, I'm fantastic. Yeah, you're doing I, pretty, uh, you won a bunch of Emmys recently. I, I did, and that's pretty fantastic. But I, um, yeah, don't ask me any questions about politics. Okay. Don't ask me questions about politics. Oh, yeah, you must get those all the time because of the West. Oh, my God. People think, uh, you know, what do you think about the political world? You know, whatever. I, I'm constantly embarrassed during this this time, especially. is, is um, Election season. I can't. I can't watch the debates. They, the dialogue is, is just not what I want to hear and not what's important to me. If only Aaron Sorkin wrote the dialogue for the presidential yes. candidates. Yes. Oh, my God. Here's our second question. Which is, tell us something we don't know. Well, I don't know. I think I've said this before. I don't know if everyone knows it, but I am um, a rap artist. I'm 
What? I'm lying. I am just lying. I'm a liar. That's all I do. That's what we didn't no, know, um, Allison. Jenny. I'm a liar. You know what? I love rap music, though. I don't know if too many people would know that about me. I don't know that I would peg you as a rap lover. I either have my Pandora on hip hop road trip or backspin serious. I just always that's what's on in my car. <laughs> we will end this uh, interview invariably by bringing up some music. What hip hop track Good. should we be playing underneath you right now as we say goodbye? Oh my. Gosh. Oh, now you're going to put me on the spot. Biggie, hypnotize. Play that. Okay. Hypnotize. Okay. Hypnotize. Sicker than your average. Pop a twist cabbage on instinct. Just don't think. Stink pink gators. My Detroit players. Tim's for my hooligans in Brooklyn. Allison Janney, star of the sitcom Mom. She's up for an Emmy for it. If she wins, it'll be her eighth time. Enrico, actually, it doesn't surprise me Allison's into hip hop. Really? I was. No, surprised. she was spitting fast dialogue for years on the West Wing. That's. <laughs> That's true. It was kind of a, a hip hop if you think the about it. The West Coast first East Coast wing. That's what it was. All right, and now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Rico, Thanksgiving is closing in on us, which means... No, sweet potato lattes at Starbucks. That's <laughs> no. That's you're thinking name. pumpkins and Halloween. You know it's next. No. You know it's coming next. <laughs> it means it means home cooks across the country are crafting Thanksgiving menus and confronting the annual paradox. How do you respect tradition and keep things interesting? That's right. Keep it Thanksgiving-y but not boring-y. The secret to life. Mm. So this week I headed over to Bon Appetit magazine to speak with editor in chief Adam Rappaport. Their new issue has a 40-page feature where they tackle everything from pre-meal rituals to how to deal with leftovers. Okay. And I started at the beginning. What's the best way, I asked, to pre-game a Thanksgiving meal? Well, I'm a firm believer that the pre-game is the best part of the day. If done right, you're talking at least an hour, maybe two. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And you're excited to see everyone. You're not arguing yet. Your crazy uncle isn't really drunk yet. So it's kind of like, you know, it's just everything is good. There's a lot of hope. Yes, exactly. There's hope. So, yeah. So this is like two to three hours before maybe a football game's on. Yeah, I would say three hours is dangerous. Because if you're drinking, three hours is a long time. That's You're right. That's a long lead time. So this all then gets back to, well, what time's dinner? And optimally, I like that the sun is down, but just down, like maybe five o'clock or so. So the pregame, I would say it starts at three, assuming that not everyone's going to get to the house at exactly 3 p.m. That's ample time to snack without filling up too much and to drink without getting too drunk. And we endorse a a, a lighter beverage. You made a suggestion about a punch. Yeah, we say drink like an adult. You want to drink in hand and perhaps a slight buzz, but getting blitzed before the meal is just bad form. Yeah. Uh, Our sherry tonic punch is flavorful but low octane, guaranteeing hours of easy breezy sipping. Wow, who writes this stuff? Um, <laughs> but I do think that's an important thing to mind because, in theory, you haven't eaten yet. Um, and that's clever. I think if you're mixing drinks, your uncle can maybe pour a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> but when the punch is already made, it feels festive, and you're in tight control, at least at the beginning. I hadn't thought about that, but I like that, too. All right, so we're going to talk turkey. I was trying yeah. to avoid oh, that pun. I was trying to avoid one. that pun. Um, but I don't think I want my turkey to get too weird. Like, I think on, in this issue, you have one where the chicken's already parted and it's almost like a braise. We have, yeah, we call it turkey. Yeah, so the dark meat is actually what's great about dark meat, like any sort of dark meat, is that if, if you braise it like a stew, it, all of a sudden it becomes fall apart tender. It's like cocoa van. But that's not Thanksgiving to me. If someone handed me a plate of parted turkey. Well, no, I think what you can do is this. 
We also have a classic lacquered and glazed turkey. That is food porn of the highest order. Yeah, and this is what we (laughs) kind of refer to as our Norman Rockwell turkey, but it's a little bit updated in that we sort of glaze it with sherry wine and soy sauce and a little brown sugar. So it looks classic American, but the flavor profile, as we say. A little Pacific flavor. Yeah, exactly. It's a little bit more exotic. (laughs) All right, so we got the turkey, low-octane drinks beforehand, so we're not too woozy. This is where we can have a lot of fun. The sides is where we get a little crazy. Um, <laughs> and uh, however, once again, you can get crazy with your side dishes if mm. you already have your mashed potatoes and stuffing. You know, mm. you need okay, that traditional yeah, I see, I base. Like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I think you can sort of take your vegetable sides and whatnot and inject some Asian or Indian or Southwestern. Like this is like being a DJ. You like you got to play the classics at the wedding, right? Yeah. You need to play the electric slide or Michael Jackson, but then. You can throw in your new cut, Skrillex. Uh, so the side dish that looks caught my eye is this guy. Oh, the agrodolce, the winter squash agrodolce. First, what a beautiful, beautiful word. What's going on there? It looks, well, it looks so That's a cool sort of like half moons of winter squash roasted and glazed in agrodolce, which is actually a very traditional old school Italian ingredient, I guess. And it's kind of like the... It's, <laughs> It's kind of like the sweet and sour sauce of Italy. All right. You know, yeah, but yeah. what so many cultures understand is balance. And if you have sweet, you want spicy. If you have acid, you want fat. Um, and it's just getting that balance and sort of glazing the vegetables with it. It's a beautiful looking dish. Maybe a good way to get rid of your decorative gourds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what to do with all those gourds that have been sitting on my table for like yeah. the last month and a half? You turn them into agrodolce. All right. So that that's the side. And... Do you agree the best part of Thanksgiving? The best thing about Thanksgiving is the two hours before dinner and the day exactly. after. Um, yeah, no, I'm a huge leftover fan. Then we also have a, a really fun article on the new issue on uh, leftover sandwiches. And yeah. I'm normally like now, I'm like, oh, wheat bread, multigrain sort of guy. I like bread with texture, but turkey sandwich, just give me classic like white bread. White you bread, know? yeah. You know, if potato you have a roll or white bread or love something. Love a potato roll or like Pullman loaf or something. Um, I love lots of mayonnaise. Give me, I can go through like a jar of Hellman's like in a day after Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, yeah, turkey, lettuce, that's it, you know. Um, but we have some fun ideas. Uh, the one I love is the turkey pho dip. Okay. So pho as in PHO, like the, uh, the, the Vietnamese. Exactly. Take the turkey carcass. Uh, you make a turkey broth, but you sort of do it in a Vietnamese style with cinnamon sticks and star anise and ginger and all that good stuff. And then meanwhile, you get some French bread. You take your turkey. You get some bean sprouts, some chili, some lime, kind of a banh mi in quotes. Uh, and then you take that and you dip it into the pho broth and the best is we have this other one, the cheese giving, which scares the hell out of me. I'm not going to uh, lie. I saw the cheese giving, and at first I was like, that's absolutely, and then I couldn't take my eyes off of it. Can yeah. you explain what this uh, is? Inspired by Adam Mesnick of Deli Board in San Francisco, a chef there. Um, you melt a bunch of butter in a pan with garlic. You saute it. You throw the turkey, the shredded turkey in there, and then it says... Add six ounces of chopped white American cheese. (laughs) That's about two singles per sandwich, stirring until melted. So it becomes this like gorgeous mess, and then you spoon that onto a roll. This is like the sweatpants of food, (laughs) right? With (laughs) mayonnaise and and leftover cranberry sauce. Oh, and some (laughs) leftover mashed potatoes because why not? The thing is, like we 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 sort of like that's disgusting, but you would eat the entire thing completely if someone presented that in front of you while watching Sports Center. It would be done before I knew it. Uh, why can't we just serve cheese giving and call it a day? <laughs> I don't know. So that would be like going to a rock show and just hearing the encore. You that, know? that doesn't sound bad to me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you have a point there. I think so. While we're at it. Why do we have to wake up to take naps? Right? That's what I'm saying. Just get to the good part. All day long. Snooze. 
folks. Uh, speaking of the good part, etiquette advice from the man behind classic 70s sitcoms like All in the Family and the Jeffersons, Norman Lear. That's right, when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, comedian John Mulaney will tell us how to get him to do anything. It's very handy. Yeah. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. All right. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Mr. Norman Lear. He created and produced many of the TV shows that shaped sitcom history, including All in the Family, Maud, Good Times, and The Jeffersons, one of my favorites. Mm. At their peak, his programs were viewed by 120 million people a week. That is 240 million eyeballs, <laughs> give or take an eyeball. But, but TV is just a part of the story. He's also been a World War II serviceman, a joke writer, and an activist. He writes about all of it in his memoir, Even This I Get to Experience. It just came out in paperback. And Norman, welcome. I Even this, look at this. Yes, Talking you, to you guys, here I am. Doesn't get any better. It doesn't. There is, there's obviously far too much here to fit into one interview, so we're just going to dive straight into your TV work, if you don't mind. First of all... Anywhere you want to go. Tell us about your first encounter with television. As you write in the in the prologue of the book, you were alive at the birth of TV, more or less. Uh, yes, we had uh, my wife my, with a child and I drove out to California. I was going to look for work as a publicist. Hmm. And the only person we knew who had a television set was an uncle who was living here. We used to go over hmm. to Uncle Al's to watch uh, Milton Berle. Of course. The great Milton Berle. Did it, did it have much of an impact on you? Do you remember being... Well, no less uh, or no more enthralled than I am today it's <laughs> in this golden age of television. It's uh, unfortunately, like everything else in America, we, we deal with excess. And mm. so there's <laughs> just too much content, but great. It, it is. It's, it's overwhelming. But back well, then, but, all you but, had was Milton Berle. It was much simpler then, I guess. It was a lot simpler. Well, life generally was simpler then. You ended up making shows like All in the Family that were some of the first sitcoms to directly take on charged political and social issues. What led to that? Was it well, that? Well, it was part of an expression of love of America. Mm. You know, I, I think often that when I was a kid, we were in love with America. And I think because in grade school, we had civics classes. I was taught as an eight, nine-year-old what my Constitution and Bill of Rights and so forth meant to me, what made America what it was. In love with America is to understand those promises and guarantees uh, my dad went to prison when I was nine years old. Hmm. I was scared hmm. to death. Uh, I was Jewish. Uh, there was a Father Coughlin on radio who was a vicious anti-Semite. But I yeah. knew my First Amendment and my Bill of Rights. I know that that was part of what sustained me. So it was always important for you to speak out politically. Although you started out, I mean, the, the, your career kind of began writing jokes for comedians that people wouldn't consider politically edgy. Danny Thomas and Jerry Lewis. Do you remember a point where you made that shift? I didn't know there was a shift. The very first Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis Colgate comedy hour, the very first sketch in the first show that we wrote, had to do with uh, 
campaign that the motion picture studios were running because they were afraid of television. Every motion picture theater had a sign that said, movies are better than ever. <laughs> Our first sketch was a satirical look at that. Oh, wow. Dean was running a theater. Marilyn Maxwell, a beautiful guest star, was the usherette. She was trying to vamp people on the sidewalk to come into the theater. He was trying to bludgeon people to come into the theater. <laughs> Jerry came along. They finally got him into the theater. He screamed in the darkness. He couldn't be alone in the dark, and he ran. And that first sketch caused so much of a furor that the studios insisted that, and they did it, that Dean and Jerry took out an ad apologizing. Oh, wow. So, it, oh my so goodness. you started your career pretty much throwing some bombs. Pretty much the way it went. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> Let's talk about actually All in the Family, with arguably the most historically important show you made. And it's, for those who don't know about Archie Bunker, this cantankerous, racist, middle-class guy and his relationship with his family. From page one of your book, you make it clear that Archie was based on your own dad. My dad used to call me the laziest white kid he ever met. <laughs> oh, yeah. That sounds and, Archie Bunker-esque. And I would, you know, yell at him that, you know, he didn't have to put down a whole race of people just to call me lazy. <laughs> oh, so I lived I lived with that. So, of course, that was part of Archie. Do you have maybe an example of an episode or a situation from the show that you pulled straight out of your own life? Uh, straight out of my own life? Archie and Mike, the son-in-law, yeah. were locked in a cellar, and there was wine down there, and they drank. And the way they fought and threw the argument past love for one another speaks very much to my relationship with my dad. You ain't never on my side. What do you mean? I've been on your side. Oh, I've been on your side, man. What are you talking what about? What about when you wanted to buy the bar? And you forged Ma's signature. I traced, I traced, traced. Oh, right. How long have I ever traced All right, I'm saying trace. And, and, and I understood at the time you had that little thing with the waitress. Oh, for God's sake, ain't the world ever going to forget about my little thing? <laughs> well, to the world. How is the world? That world out there, kid, ain't up to no good. Right? You don't trust nobody out there except for your own coin. My dad, he, he, it's difficult for me to say he didn't tell the truth. He cheated, he stole, but uh, I never stopped loving him. Well, Norman, you've led quite a life, uh, and it's all led up to this crowning moment. That's right. <laughs> Lucky you. Yeah, you get to answer our listeners' etiquette questions. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. All right. So this first question comes from Andrew in the United Kingdom. Andrew writes, I've committed to hosting a party, but I've also just developed an ingrown toenail. <laughs> How can I adequately host a party and simultaneously soak my toe in hot water? <laughs> I don't think he should soak his toe. He should remove it. <laughs> have, the toe, have the toe removed before the That's party. That's right. Before the, oh, yes, do it before the party. Party comes before the toe. You don't even really need toes. My sister's a foot doctor. She would kill me. If, but, I mean, do we really need all our toes? I, I've sold three of mine. <laughs> That's how you got your first show, isn't it? You sold a few toes. Like... I was going to say, Norman, you're 93. Do you Have you used all your toes in your life? No. You probably uh, haven't even used half of them. You know, it's interesting to be talking about toes because I stubbed one 
about four nights ago, and I can't do anything for a broken toe, as your sister knows. Yeah. So in, in the course of this conversation, I've been suffering a little with a hurt <laughs> toe. I'm sorry. That could be gout, though. It could it, be the good life you're leading. It, <laughs> with some nah, luck. Too young, for, too young for gout. That's true. That's true. Well, Andrew, Norman feels your pain, but alas, you got to lose the toe. So there's your advice. Here's something from Kelly in Minneapolis. And Kelly writes, I live in an old apartment building, she says, with very thin walls and apparently very thin floors. I can hear the guy below me snoring every night. How do I tell him his snoring is keeping other tenants awake? I should mention he is socially awkward. He never leaves his apartment. And sometimes I think he'll just snap and kill everyone in the building. (laughs) (laughs) And the question? (laughs) How do I tell him he's keeping other tenants awake, she asks. Phone him. But but he's socially <laughs> awkward and he may kill everybody. Well, if he kills everybody, the problem is over. <laughs> That's there we go. <laughs> nobody will, be keep... nobody will be troubled by his snoring. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's not anything I would recommend. Please tell her, but uh, it would be a solution. Just to, just to call mm. him up. All right, simple. simple you know, I, idea. I have this problem. My my girlfriend just told me the other day that I snore. And I didn't believe her. And then How she. How would she know that? I, well, I, well I, I, you might. This might upset you. I know you're very conservative, but we share a bed sometimes. And <laughs> and you're and you're not married. I'm and we're sorry. not. We're unmarried. I know these it's, these I'm, kids I'm, these days. I've expressed my <laughs> displeasure at this situation, Norman. But you won't listen. But I said, I was like, I don't snore. And then she produced her phone, which she recorded me snoring, and it was really loud. What are you going to do about it? <sighs> I'm going to find I a deaf you... girlfriend. <laughs> I think you ought to move in with that woman in Minneapolis. <laughs> All right. There we go. All right, All right Kelly. So Kelly, just, yeah, just send an email and you have a new roommate. Yep. Thanks for Enjoy. that, Norman. He's a matchmaker as well as a television showmaker. That's a genius. This next question comes from Brian in Miami. Brian writes, Norman, one of my friends loves to proclaim, I don't watch television. I don't mind that he doesn't watch my favorite medium, but he sounds so elitist when he says it, and he wears it like a badge of his good breeding or something. Apparently, he prefers books and caviar, etc. <laughs> anyway, what's a good response? Get lost. <laughs> <laughs> Easy peasy. All right. Norman Lear. His book is called Even This I Get to Experience. Norman, thank you so much for telling our audience succinctly how to behave. Thank you for talking about the book. I couldn't appreciate it more. Norman Lear, once again, his memoir, Even This I Get to Experience, just came out in paperback. And folks, if you want to experience one of your etiquette dilemmas being discussed and possibly solved, Mm. type it into an email and send it to us. You can find us at dinnerpartydownload.org. Or call our DPD hotline at 929-335-3653. That's 929-335-DNLD. Comedian John Mulaney cut his teeth as a writer for Saturday Night Live, where he co-created iconic characters like Stefan, the club kid come nightlife reporter on Weekend Update. After leaving SNL, John briefly had an eponymous sitcom on Fox, and all the while, he's been doing stand-up. You can find his latest comedy special on Netflix. It's called The Comeback Kid. In it, Mulaney shares anecdotes from his life and observations on pop culture, like this take on HGTV. Real estate agents have to deal with the dumbest people in the world making the biggest decisions of their lives. 
Every episode of HGTV is like, Craig and Stasia are looking for a two-story A-frame that's near Craig's job in the downtown, but also satisfies Stasia's need to be near the beach, which is nowhere near Craig's job. With three children and nine on the way, and a max budget of seven dollars. Let's see what Lori Joe can do on this week's episode of You Don't Deserve a Beach House. <laughs> when I met with John, I asked him about the origins of that riff. That was like months of watching that with my wife. I, I don't really watch... I watch TV really passively and really... Like, if I ever saw footage of me watching TV, I think I'd start crying. Like, I really watch TV like a true dummy. Like, I'm not scanning it and trying to think of things. When yeah. I have observations about particular shows, it's because I've been watching them for, like, nine years. Yeah. So a couple things start to occur to me. Well, in the special, you joke about Back to the Future and other pop culture stuff, so... I assumed you were kind of a scholar and that you, you, you know, took a lot of pop culture in. I do take it in. I do take it in. Oh, completely take it in. Mm. I just don't in the moment come up with uh, the gag. I sort of notice things later. I notice things far too late. You know, like I, I have new jokes about the OJ trial right now, and it's really bumming me out that I didn't, that I didn't, I wasn't an adult and a comedian in 1994. But there's things I noticed, and I'm like, hey, can we talk about this? Yeah. And no one wants to talk about it. So how did you get into comedy? You joke a lot about your traditional upbringing. Your your mother was a law professor. Your father was a lawyer. What did they think about your getting into comedy for a living? My parents, I think, were savvy enough to know that. If you tell a kid in the 90s and 2000s not to do something, they'll not only do it, but they'll also be mad at you and you'll come off poorly to everyone. Yeah. I talked to them later and they told me they basically thought it, they didn't know if it would work out at all. Mm. Um, they had no idea how it worked. They had no idea how to give any input advice or anything on <laughs> being a stand-up comedian and like emceeing at Penguins in Cedar Rapids, <laughs> Iowa. Uh, and so they were basically, I think, maybe mentally decided to give me a year or two years. Well, you pretty quickly found gainful employment. You were a writer for Saturday Night Live. Well, yeah. How, how did that work? You were writing with some great people also outside SNL with Nick Kroll doing other things. What If, if, if I'm sitting down with John Mulaney in a writer's room... What do you bring? Like, well, how do how do you think those guys describe your contribution to? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I was a little all purpose, I'd say. Mm. I, I I think I was best when I was working with other people, and so I was kind of like good at. Oh yeah, I like that, and it should maybe have this. I, I felt like I was a. Uh, You'd kind like of punch things style. up and, and enhance them? Yeah, or more just, I could write jokes for different people's sketches. I wrote my own sketches. Um, yeah. Then Bill and I could sit down, and we really overlapped in what we liked. So we would kind of write together in one voice, it felt like. The Bill you're referring to is Bill Hader, who worked on SNL. Mm -hmm. And you guys created the Weekend Update's beloved nightlife correspondent, Stefan, right? Right, right. We wrote that together. Stefan was a club kid who would give suggestions about what people should do in the evenings, uh, and his riffs were filled with pop culture references. What did the idea board for that segment look like? It must have been crazy. The rule was things we had seen once. Okay. You know, that way it wasn't complete pretend, and that, but also it wasn't that identifiable. So it was just, we just kind of wanted that thing of like, hmm, a cleaning woman that looks like Smokey Robinson. I think we wanted people to go, I think I know what that is. Okay, Savant, a lot of people are taking their moms on the town tomorrow. Any tips on where they can go to have a fun-filled Mother's Day? Yes. New York's hottest club is... Uh. <laughs> 
Located in the middle of the West Side Highway, the Spy Curious Beach Party is the creation of Italian club owner Baloney Danza. And this place has everything. Split kicks, pachucos, pile after pile of expired Lunchables, a Hawaiian cleaning lady that looks like Smokey Robinson. Plus, if you come this Sunday, you'll meet two-year-old ultimate fighter Drooly Lips Jackson. He's got fists like little empanadas. Rest in peace, Stefan. So it sounds like you worked collaboratively, which isn't super surprising since you often talk about how you're not really this alpha male. Nope. Uh, nope. And True and beta. S- true beta. And so being a beta, being kind of looking young, uh-huh. did, did that work for you in show business when you were coming up? Do you think it's helped you to kind of appear guileless or... No. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> being an alpha would be helpful in certain situations. Uh, standing up for yourself would be good in certain situations. Um, you know, I was thinking about this today. Just I, if I'm on a phone call, I'll agree to anything. And I need, so I was saying, like, I don't think I can talk to people on the phone anymore. And then I thought, well, that's how you become crazy, you know? That's probably like step one in how you yeah. become Michael Jackson is you're like, I can't speak to anyone because I don't trust myself. But I am a real, I'm such a pushover. Yeah. Uh, It frustrates me. Note to the listeners, that's how we got John on. He doesn't even know where he is right now. We just called him up. We're like, I actually don't know where I am, but I, I am happy to be here. John Mulaney, his latest comedy special is called The Comeback Kid, the title referring to a very funny true story that involves John's mother and former President Bill Clinton. Mm. Check it out. All right. By the way, was that John who was vacuuming around our studios the other day? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just called him and he showed up. (laughs) Wow. Could you pass along his number? Because I have a thing I need him to smuggle. Oh, totally. And uh, folks... That's the Dinner Party download for this week. This show would not exist without the hard work of producer Jackson Musker, associate producer Nina Patak, and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Engineering assistance this week came from Jeff Peters. And if you like what you hear, please take a second to head over to iTunes, where you can subscribe to our podcast. Yes. That way you'll also hear special podcast-only episodes of the show. Coming up this week, in fact, is our annual All Icebreaker Show, uh, yeah. featuring an onslaught of jokes told by the likes of Alice Cooper, Cameron Diaz, Alan Cumming, and dozens more. Oh, the puns. Now go forth and have a great week. Bon appetit. Bon appetit.